Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetics industry. This is episode 221. I'm your host, Valerie George, and with me today is Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. On today's show, we're going to be answering questions about, is blow drying hair at low heat better for your hair than air drying? How important are amino acids in hair care products? And how do you go about studying cosmetic science? And we'll cover some beauty news too, but first, Perry, I saw you ran a marathon? Well, sort of. I ran a marathon. Now you know that I'm a bit of a runner, right? Not just a runner, but a juggler, right? You run and juggle, or you, yeah, you run and juggle at the same time, right? I do, yes. Every time I run, I juggle. And I'm a streak runner, too, which uh, I have not missed a single day of outdoor running in 11 and a half years. How many? You track it in days, though, right? Yes, 4,100 and uh, I think I'm up to 62 today, 4,162 days. Yeah, so (laughs) that's my little project. You know, what's impressive about that before before we talk about the marathon is that you live in probably the most unfriendly weather city that I can think of, Chicago. And it can certainly get a little cold and hot. (laughs) And snowy and wet. And yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, there are some days. Well, I was out there in that polar vortex and it was negative 20F. And wow. <laughs> but, you know, you just bundle up. So anyway, I had this notion. My friend told me about this idea of, you know, what can you do during this pandemic times and your quarantine? So you really need things in your life to kind of look forward to or to plan. Otherwise, yeah. all the days kind of start to bleed together. And they do. It gets kind of bleak. So one of my... My friends told me about this idea that this uh, person that he knew had to do a marathon. And this wasn't just a normal marathon. I I call it the pandemic marathon. But, uh, you know, a marathon is 26.2 miles. Yeah. So the idea was I would just run two miles every hour for 13 hours. And boom, I've got a marathon. So I started at 7 o'clock in the morning. I ran... 2.2 2.2 miles. I figured I'd get that extra 0.2 out of the way before. Oh, yeah. 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 Because you don't want to do that at the end. So then every hour from 7 a.m. until uh, 8 p.m. Actually, it was 7 to 7 because you just got to get in before 8. I ran uh, two miles. <laughs> so you would run two miles and then go back home. Yeah, I'd run. I, I actually had the square. I ran the exact same square route. Wow. Uh, it's a half a mile each leg of the square, and they ended up back at my house. So I, I wonder what the neighbors thought. <laughs> I <don't laughs> like know. it was Groundhog's Day or something. Right. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was good. I mean, my my total marathon time was like three hours and 45 minutes of running, which isn't bad for marathoning, but uh, I, I think I could try that again it, and maybe get a little faster. And I had no no drops, so I didn't drop any beanbags. Question, do you usually drop beanbags? During a marathon, maybe I have one or two drops, uh, but I have made it through an entire marathon with no drops. That's pretty cool. Second question, did you have any outfit changes? Sorry, (laughs) that's one of the first things I think of. What do you wear? Actually, I did change my shirt uh, at about the fifth 
fifth lap. So I had two shirts, and they were both pretty wet and smelly, I have to say. <laughs> I probably could have changed more frequently, but ah, it's it's a pandemic. Nobody's near me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no judgments there. That Well, that's pretty cool. I yeah. uh, did not even run two miles, so I think that tells you where I'm at. <laughs> well, running is not for everyone. Actually, it took me... Eight years of consistent running before I actually liked it. I, I hated running. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a big running fan. I actually am allergic to it. I get a a, a rash on my legs, like a and stomach, really? like a true rash when I run. Yeah. Also, I have a bad back, and I, I don't think it's good for my back. But maybe that's an excuse. I don't know. Well, don't let any of these runners fool you. Running is a little bit painful. So. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe just the way I do it. I don't, I don't yeah. Know. Yeah. Shall we get into the beauty stuff? Yeah. I think we saw a pretty well, I was I thought it was a pretty incredible article. We've reported, we've even joked about having a Johnson and Johnson talc segment on the show. Uh, and you guys have heard us talk about the lawsuits. It, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Johnson & Johnson announced that in North America, they are no longer going to sell their talc-based baby powder. They're only going to sell amazing. their cornstarch version. Yeah. So, wow. What do you think, Perry? Well, uh, first, this, this cornstarch version is... Is how's the cornstarch version? I I I don't hear good things about the cornstarch version. I don't hear good ver- uh, good things about it either. Yeah, it's and that's why the talc thing is still around because it just works better. Uh, I think this is this is pretty amazing. Although it's not surprising to me because uh, last year the their main talc supplier uh, filed for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And early this year, they were selling off their talc mines. So now Johnson Johnson's primary supplier is not going to supply them with talc anymore. They have to work with somebody else. And you add into that the the headaches of all the uh, the lawsuits, yeah, and the uncertainty there, and also the fact that J and J is a pharmaceutical company. I I honestly don't know why they're in the baby product industry still anyway it can't be a big big money maker for them right (laughs) well i think historically it has been and i I would say certainly recently not and that was the reasoning johnson and johnson provided was that just in the north america uh, consumers are not really interested in their baby powder anymore especially the talc based version they have suffered extensive litigation so it's probably just easier they get out of it and and move on to other formulas. So I was surprised that they gave in, especially yeah. given their strong stance that the, the product is safe to use and they don't see any issues with it. But, you know, at the end of the day, consumerism prevails and consumers dictate what's going to sell. And the same thing happened with parabens, right? right. Parabens are safe, I- but consumers didn't want them. Brands gave in switch to other stuff and damage is done in that sense. So it just yeah. demonstrates that fear mongering is effective. <laughs> <laughs> Sa- yeah, sadly, we don't like but... it, but it works, right? That's why people ah, do it. It's, yeah. So if you're uh, starting a brand, we'll, ra- we'll, ra- we'll rail against you if you're using fear marketing, but you'll probably still be successful. <laughs> 
Speaking of successful, I, I saw this list, uh, and this is just a quick one, but I saw this list uh, put out by Cosmetify.com of the 2020 beauty influencers rich list. Oh, like the wealthiest and, you know, influencers? Yeah, I think okay. these are the beauty influencers who can make the most money uh, online and such. And, you know, you and I are in the beauty industry, right? Yeah. I mean. So I'm looking through this list and I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are. We weren't on it? What? I, we were not only were we not on it, I I know almost none of these people. Although in retrospect, now I probably heard these names on occasions, but the number you know, the number one is this uh James Charles character. Never heard of him. Actually, you know what I have? Isn't he isn't he the first person to sign with CoverGirl, the first male? To uh, sign with CoverGirl as an ambassador? Maybe. maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I, you're probably I'll put not a maybe wrong. by him. <laughs> yeah. Nope. Number two is this uh, Bretman Rock. Uh, another Never person I've not heard of. And then uh, Huda Katan. Um, You've heard of Huda, right? Huda Beauty? I've heard of Huda Beauty. Yeah, I did not know she was like an influencer. She's the Huda of Huda Beauty. How can, really, seriously, how can I be this ignorant of the beauty industry and have this podcast? Well, to be fair, I think this is a very, uh, very specific niche. I mean, the only reason I know about Huda or number eight on the list, Jeffree Star, is because they actually created their own product lines. That's why I've heard of them. These yeah. other people, I I literally have never heard of. You know, there was an excellent Reply All episode, which is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. But they looked at, uh, there was this whole kerfuffle about beauty influencers a few years back, uh, which is, it's worth listening to. But uh, that kind of opened my eyes to this whole area of the beauty industry I didn't know much about. And I apparently I still don't know much about it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's it's really interesting because uh, this article that you reference, it's in the show notes, everybody, is speaking about their earnings. Uh, these oh aren't necessarily God, yeah. the most famous, uh, but it's the highest earning people. And it's pretty, uh, pretty incredible. Uh, James Charles, for example, uh, between Instagram and YouTube per post or per video makes over one hundred thousand dollars. <sighs> wow. You know, you know how much we can make off a episode of our podcast here. <laughs> <laughs> well, if uh, maybe a couple bucks, if we uh, have our Patreon donors, thank exactly. you, everybody. We, get, we, yeah. get, we, we love our patrons, uh, but it's certainly not a hundred thousand dollars. I don't per even know episode. if it's a hundred bucks, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, wow, wow, that's pretty uh, incredible. Well, good for them. Um, it proves I'm in the wrong industry. Or wrong end of the industry, I should yeah. say. And, right um, industry, yeah. Yeah. Maybe I well, should switch uh, to being a beauty influencer. Actually, we have like, we have over 8,000 followers on Instagram. He's got 16 million. So we did, we got some catching up to do, but we're not that far behind, right? <laughs> oh my. I'm excited when I get one new follower. I'm like, <laughs> Equally depressed when I lose one, but that's fine. Can't uh, take it personally. Well, you, anyway. you cannot. You cannot. Yeah. Well, good for them, and uh, keep keep an eye on all those influencers. Yeah. Um, yeah, and one last piece of news uh, that we saw, the SCCS, which is the Scientific Committee for Consumer Safety, 
they post a posted a trio of final safety opinions on a couple ingredients. Yeah, and these refer to ingredients for both hair dye, antiperspirant, and anti-dandruff ingredients. So these are actually, uh, well, the ex with the exception of hair dye, these would be drug products in the United States. The SECS uh, is the safety arm or scientific safety arm of uh, what the EU regulators use to determine whether products are safe or not. They're also the body that declared that parabens were perfectly safe to use in cosmetics, but, <laughs> but you still see that myth that uh, parabens have been banned in Europe. Uh, you know, the ones that we use in cosmetics were not banned, but, <laughs> but I digress. Anyway, their conclusions uh, was based on a review of toxicological data. They said this indigofera tinctorial was safe as used in cosmetic hair dyes and all the way up to 25%. You familiar with that hair dye? Yeah, it's a plant-based colorant. Uh, like you use uh, henna or cassia to color hair. Uh, this is also just a, a plant-based colorant. It's not typically used, but yeah. in conventional hair color, I should say. It's not typically right. used, but uh, yeah. Apparently, you can use up to 25% and feel safe. Uh, also, DHA, which is the stuff that is used to color your skin, uh, that has also been uh, deemed safe up to 10% use level. Yep. So It, it doesn't really work well on coloring hair. Uh, definitely right. works well on coloring skin, for sure. Yeah. But up to 10%, whichever way you want to use it, it's cool. Yeah, you can uh, use enough of it, you can turn orange. <laughs> <laughs> They also determined that the aluminum compounds used in antiperspirants, both spray and non-spray, were safe. Woo woo! Yeah, also aluminum salts used in toothpaste and lip products were safe. So, so much for that clean beauty BS, right? Because <laughs> yeah. you can, I mean, those things are safe. Uh, it is important to point out that, though, that even... They even looked at the notion of accumulation over time, and that was not something that cosmetic product use significantly contributed to. Uh, so if you're using these products daily, uh, over the course of your entire life, you still don't build up enough for these to be dangerous to use. And then finally, they said zinc pyrithione, which is used in anti-dandruff shampoos, is also safe. It, it just goes to show that uh, stories where people say, oh, that, that thing that you've been using for years is perfectly safe are much less interesting than ones that say, oh, that thing you've been using for years is causing cancer. <laughs> yeah, certainly less exciting. But uh, I do want to note that it is important for everyone to understand that this group, the SCCS, they're not funded by the industry. The scientists do not work for the industry. These are independent scientists a pool of people that receive scientific studies and literature that come from all aspects of scientific research. And they review this information. Usually it is uh, safety studies that have been done or peer-reviewed literature that has been published. And they make note and they look at everything, not just uh, irrit irritancy on the skin or what happens if you ingest it. Uh, they look at toxicology, reproductive toxicity, carcinogenicity, mutagenicity. They're really looking at all aspects to say, okay, how effective or how detrimental is this product when you're ingredient, when you're being exposed to it? And how are we using it in cosmetics? Let's define those parameters. And, and this is how it's safe to be used. So uh, it really is pretty thorough work. And 
Another thing to note, these levels of ingredients that we talked about, the up to 25% of the indigo and up to 10% of the DHA and the aluminum salts and all that kind of stuff, the use levels that they noted uh, to be safe, they're not too different from what the U.S. allows. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. You often hear the the claim that uh, the products in the EU follow much stricter regulations and so they're safer. But if you actually look at what the recommendations are, these are not really that much different than what you're going to find in the United States. I mean, this to me is just more evidence that cosmetic products in the U.S. are not less safe than those in the EU. And overall, cosmetic products, whether it's EU or U.S., I mean, they're safe. So it's not something that you need to really worry too much about. Let's answer some beauty questions. Ah, it's been a little while. Yeah, let's do that. Our first question uh, comes to us from Renee. The scientist at GHD, which is a tool company, says that blow drying at low heat and speed is actually better for hair than air drying. Is this true? And there is a link to the science of drying your hair by the GHD hair brand. You said it was a tool company. It's not like hammers and nails, right? It's a different, oh. <laughs> different, different kind of tool. Different kind of tools. Oh, gosh. Uh, gotcha, I forgot gotcha. who we're, we're speaking with here. Uh, yeah, so tool like, you know, flat irons, blow dryers, <laughs> not nail guns gotcha. or that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Perry's thinking Home Depot. I'm thinking like the tool <laughs> section at Sephora. Um, yeah. yeah, so the, <laughs> this is actually a good question, Renee. Thank you. Honestly, I doubt from a hair health perspective, a consumer is going to notice much of a difference. Uh, if you were to actually analyze the hair fiber, look at it close up, I don't think you're going to notice much difference in damage. I would say that probably if you got close up to the hair fiber and over multiple repetitive uses, looked at a, a tress that has been dried with a blow dryer, even at low heat, low speed versus air drying, you, you may find some more damage on the hair that used the tool. And I'm thinking just because A, there is some heat exposure, <clears throat> there is some heat exposure and B, you have the mechanical damage of a brush continually going through the hair to right. style the hair. So I would guess in, in that way, you may notice a difference that air drying it the hair fiber is probably a little bit better, but honestly, probably not much of a difference. If you're using medium to high heat, for sure, the tress is going to have more damage than if you just air dried the hair. However, I will think you'll notice a style difference if you were to air dry versus blow drying. And that is because when you apply heat to hair, even very low heat, you are allowing with the movement of the brush, some mechanical realignment of the hair fiber and some smoothing of the cuticle to get the hair fiber to lay flat and compact. So you get a really polished end look. If you were to air dry and you just allow the water to evaporate from the hair, I think uh, you can tend to have, I don't want to say frizzy or unkempt, but you can have less fiber alignment, which leads to a less polished and look. So yes. I think in that way you would notice a difference, but from a hair health, I'm not sure uh, too much of a difference would be noticed. There is one article that I have seen in the past that talks about not air dry versus blow dry, but really high heat versus low heat. And it was an article 
in 2012 from the Journal of Cosmetic Science by a raw material supplier. They did a study about progressive hair straightening using an automated flat iron, and they basically purported that in combination with some silicone materials, if you used low heat and did more passes on the hair, you actually got better longevity in straightening than if you used high temperature with uh, fewer passes and the hair was less damaged. So uh, low heat is definitely better than high heat for sure. But when it comes to air dry versus low heat, I think it depends on the end look you're going for. I personally would pass on blow drying just to reduce the amount of mechanical damage my hair has, but that's me. I think one of the key things that you said about this, though, is what will people actually notice? Now, of all of things it, with beauty products, I think hair hair damage is something you might notice uh, more than other things just because it can impact the way that the hair feels when you're running a comb through it or something like that, or even mm -hmm. just touching it. it you, you can tell differences and damages, but you're not going to be able to tell subtle differences and damages. I mean, you could tell a difference if your hair is colored or bleached versus not. I mean, pretty much everyone will be able to tell that difference, but to tell a difference between whether it was air dried or blow dried, regular people aren't going to be able to tell differences. No, not at all. What companies do, they want to make claims though, right? And to be able to prove that claim, you're going to have to show in a laboratory that there's some numerical difference, right? And so that they'll set up a test where they can show some sort of numerical difference, and it could even be mathematically, statistically significant. But in real life, it, it doesn't matter because nobody can actually tell a difference. Yeah, as Perry said, when we're designing clinical studies um, in, a, in the laboratory to, to get the claims, we try to make it mimic real life as much as possible. And sure, you know, blow drying your hair, I'm sure GHD was able to demonstrate, uh, you know, some things here about what they've uncovered. But whether or not you'll be able to tell a difference within those numerical claims, that's not really indicated by by the numbers that they can generate. So I think uh, you're probably safe using any blow dryer at low heat. And if you want to air dry, I definitely would recommend that to reduce uh, damage. Whether or not you'll feel that, I don't know. You'll probably look a little less put together. Uh, so if you want a polished look, go ahead and blow dry. Yeah. All right. Anyway, sorry for the long-winded question, but uh, hopefully, hopefully that helps. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Long-winded. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Blow dry, air dry. Yep. Okay. All right. So we go on to the second question? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> this one comes to us from Wagita. She says, uh, I have been wondering about amino acids in hair products. I noticed amino acids used uh, recently a lot in products, but is it even effective? Is it better to use this, uh, use something like a hydrolyzed protein, such as hydrolyzed wheat protein, or is it better to use these separate amino acids like glutamic acid, histidine, serine, arginine, and lysine? And also, what's the difference between amino acids in the relation to hair and what is the best one for damaged hair in both leave-on and mask conditioners? Wow, hmm. amino acids in hair. What do you think, Perry? They are kind of popular. Um, well, you know... Back in my days when I was on VO5, we had this 
product called Hydratine. Mm-hmm. Hydratine was a blend of five CBO5. It was a, a blend of five specialized amino acids, and we would drop hydratine into all of our shampoos, just a drop of it so we could say it had five amino acids, <laughs> <laughs> which worked great for marketing, I, I guess. I don't know how much marketing is required for a 99-cent shampoo, but, <laughs> uh, but we had that consistency and that story to tell, and from a story standpoint... Amino acids make a good story for hair products. That's primarily because hair is made up of protein. Proteins are made up of amino acids. And the amino, there's 20 uh, naturally occurring amino acids. Yep. Um, and back in my biochemistry days, I had actually memorized all 20 of those. Um, it, it did not come in handy at all at my job. I use <laughs> I use amino acid structure all the time. Really? Oh, do you? Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I, yeah uh, well, I, not not so much for me. I I could probably list all of them if you forced me to. Um, I could be like you know list of like name twenty cereals. Like okay, I could probably get through twenty amino acids. Uh, but amino acids have a long name and then they have a shortened name that's three letters long and then they have a one letter representation. And I really the one letters. Yeah, yeah. So like okay. uh, maybe alanine is represented by the letter A. Let's say lysine sure. is L. Maybe I don't know. I don't remember those. But then there's phenylalanine, right? Yeah, I remember <laughs> tryptophan's one letter abbreviation is the letter W. I don't know why, but I always remembered it uh, because <laughs> I'm laughing because tryptophan. That's how I remembered it was W. <laughs> I had a little mnemonic device for that. But anyway, you know, I use it all the time just because uh, when I read scientific papers and they reference amino acids and their roles in different things, I always, I just draw out the structure uh, just oh. to fact check a couple things. Yeah. Sure. So sure. I use Makes it a sense. lot. Okay. I I didn't use it a lot. It's as an aside, back to your tryptophan being, or what do you say? Tryptophan. And the letter W Being represents w, the amino that acid. Reminds, <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of the periodic table. The uh, the abbreviation for the element tungsten is W. Interesting. Huh. huh. So there must be some root word that of which we are not yet enlightened. <laughs> yeah. And one so, day I'll share with you, by the way, I have another mnemonic device for the periodic table to remember all of the diatomic elements, the elements that exist as two molecules like O2, CL2. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. wow. That's pretty well, I'll good. just tell you, icky brown sure. clumps fell on Nick's head. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sticky so brown clumps I-B-R-C-L-F-O-N-E. fell on Nick's head. I-B-R-C-L-F-O-N-H. Well, that's pretty good. All right. Now I'm going to have to share my periodic table mnemonic. And that is the, uh, I'm not sure how far it goes, but this is the word that I remember to remember the first bunch of uh, elements. So it's Hahi Libby Bignoff Migaltsips Clark. It uh, sounds like you're speaking a a language (laughs) from Star Wars or something like that. (laughs) Hahi, H, H E, Libby, lithium, beryllium, Uh Nina, neon, sodium. Miguel Sips Clark. So anyway, that's 
<laughs> well, enough nerding we out here on how to remember sure. uh, factoids from chemistry. Let's talk about amino acids in hair. So the notion is that since the hair is made up of amino acids, uh, you can simply just put amino acids on your hair, and that's going to help to rebuild any damaged protein or damaged structure that's in there. So that's the logic behind it. Although it's kind of a paper-thin argument if you think about it to any extent, because the hair protein, hair is protein is created in the hair follicles in a certain structure. And that structure first, there's the primary structure of the order of the amino acids. There's the secondary structure of how those uh, amino acids kind of wind around and then they start to form secondary structures. There's also the tertiary structure where those uh, protein fibers are now in this certain coiled uh, structure and then they sort of get bundled together and then ultimately you get the structure of the cuticle on the outside and the cortex in the inside. The bottom line is it's a very complicated structure and it's not uh, something where you can simply just dump a few amino acids back on and fix uh, damage. It would I always think of it kind of like uh, a, a much more simplified version is if, if you had a, had a shirt or a blouse and it got a hole in it, you couldn't just fix that by dumping a bunch of cotton fibers onto it. You would mm -hmm. actually have to stitch it together and do some work. And that's kind of what they're trying to do with putting amino acids onto your hair. So they're just trying to fill in stuff with fibers without putting the work into actually reconstructing the hair. So. The bottom line is beyond some moisturizing effect uh, or some smoothing effect that you might get, some minimal, uh, these things don't really do much in hair products. I would say on an individual amino acid level, probably, I, arginine does have some effect in formulas due to its basic nature. And I think some of the amino acids have, the, these amino acids all kind of have a similar structure uh, but there's yeah. one little element called a side group that differs from each amino acid and that can provide some functionality. So they can differ in that way. But yeah, I, I would say it's a little paper thin. There is some individual research on the amino acids where maybe you could demonstrate this or that. And I would think that Ajinomoto, who is a big amino acids supplier, would probably say, no, they really do work. And, you know, maybe <laughs> okay. they do in different arenas, but I would say probably the protein form of amino acids is more beneficial. Proteins are just made up of a chain of amino acids. And I definitely think those are functional, uh, the hydrolytes yeah. proteins, because they, it's a polymer, right? They're a chain and they can form a film. They form the film. Yeah. That, over that's the top right. of the hair and they yeah. provide the different attributes that way, whether it's strength or hydration or whatnot. So I think in that way, amino acids are beneficial. Um, and again, certain amino acids individually can have benefit. And I think there are suppliers that have demonstrated studies. I don't know if a consumer could tell the difference, uh, but, but these suppliers have created studies that say amino acids do work for different reasons, whether it's color protection or improvement in hydration or elasticity of the hair fiber. Uh, but it really just depends. I wouldn't look at a, a product and see a crap ton of amino acids and say, oh yeah, they, they definitely are doing something. Right. Amino acids are also kind of expensive 
and mm-hmm. you would really have to use a lot of them to get any benefit in hair. So some brands are using a bunch, some aren't. You're probably getting more benefit from other right. ingredients in the in the product, like the quaternized conditioning agents. I think that's an important point to bring up. Uh, whenever I answer questions like these, um, often it sounds like I'm saying, ah, yeah, that doesn't work or that doesn't work. Um, but the reality is that the claims that you see on products, they're not almost never are they sometimes they are but almost never are they complete lies certainly they're the people that are putting amino acids in their products have gone into the lab and they've done lab studies and they can i've been part of these lab studies where you try to find some difference that you can show any kind of difference you just want to show some difference and you find a difference and then you can make those claims on your bottle about it now, whether those differences are something anybody could notice, it's highly unlikely. It's very difficult to make a product that works in a way that a consumer is going to notice a big difference compared to other products on the market. So when I answer questions, it's from the perspective of what are you as a consumer going to notice? You have to add, also add on the fact that a lot of companies know that consumers see the word amino acids and they know that it sounds good. They also know that consumers can't tell much difference, so they don't even put that much of these amino acids in there. They'll just put a drop in, like we did with uh, the VO5 blend of hydrogen. <laughs> hey, it's in there. It's in there. It really was in there, uh, but there's certainly not enough in there that's going to have a big impact. So you don't, as a consumer, you don't know. Am I buying a product where they just put a drop of that in there to put it on the label, or is there a whole whole bunch of that in there, and you could tell a difference with or without? I suspect it's almost always the former. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that answers your question, Wagita. And thank you so much for asking. Yeah. So, hey, we've got an audio question. Yay. Hi, Perry and Valerie. I just wanted to first off start um, by saying how much I love your program. I am just totally enamored by the chemistry behind our products, our cosmetic products. Um, I am a professional makeup artist. I have been in the industry for 15 years, and I am a 53-year young mom of four boys, and I am going to branch out, and I'm going back to college. So as I'm getting older, I'm thinking about what I want to do with my future. And when I'm 70 years old, I am not going to be the one people are going to be looking to for the newest and latest trends. So I've decided I am going to begin a college career. I'm going to go back to school, get my aesthetics license, and then get my cosmetology instructor's license, then go get a Bachelor of Science and move to master's and a PhD so that when I'm 70 years old, I can be a professor at the university uh, in cosmetic science. That's my focus. So my question for you today is, which do you think would be a better minor for me as a future professor teaching up and coming cosmetic scientists, a business minor or a marketing minor? Thanks a bunch. Hugs to you both. And I can't wait to hear your answers. Cindy, thank you so much for the audio question. If you guys would like to ask an audio question, you certainly can. Just record something from your smartphone and send it to us in email, thebeautybrains at gmail.com. Thank you. 
53 years young, and you want to eventually become a professor of cosmetic science. So I think really what your, what your educational path is, um, it just depends on what you want your career to be. So if you want to become a future professor, usually professors at universities have to have a PhD to teach as a full matriculated, uh, tenured professor. Some universities just require a master's degree of sorts to be, you know, a lecturer or teach a course. And of course, other universities that have very specific degrees in cosmetic science, like the University of Toledo, they invite guest lecturers to fill in and teach on very specific topics. So for example, I am a guest lecturer at the University of Toledo for their hair color chemistry. Perry, you are also a lecturer at the University of Toledo. Yeah, I do a couple of remote lectures there a couple times a year, but yeah. So, and we we are not uh, um, PhD level people, but we have industry experience, and in that program, that's that's all you need. Exactly. So, yeah, it really just depends on what you want to do. So, if you want to be a professor, I think for sure you would need at least a master's in the subject matter at hand to uh, teach any course at major or a majority of universities. Uh, and for sure at the major, bigger universities, you likely need a PhD. I think it depends on the academic institution. Of course, I think it's very interesting that you're a makeup artist and you want to teach about cosmetic science. So I would think uh, mostly what are the aspects you want to teach to people? What do you enjoy about it? What are your interests in? You mentioned business and marketing. Are you interested in teaching people how to establish their own business or are you interested in understanding and learning the chemistry? I think for sure in order to teach, you have to have some experience working in the industry. So maybe that'll give you a stepping stone to figure out what aspect of the industry you would like to teach. It's, there really are tons of opportunities. Uh, there's, you know, working on the ingredient side, the raw material side, there's working on the brand side, which is more business oriented and less science focused. Uh, There's actually formulation work, there's regulatory work, there's so many things that you could do. And there are equally endless career opportunities to get there or education opportunities to follow the path to get to those career opportunities. Yeah, becoming a professor to teach about cosmetic science, that's a pretty niche thing. Um, and there aren't a, first, there aren't a lot of opportunities there. I mean, there aren't, a, there are more now, but there aren't a lot of colleges that specifically have a major for cosmetic science. So the best you're going to be able to do probably is you're going to have to get a degree in chemistry or in the pharmacy school. And, you know, that's going to take a, a, a long while. And if, if you already don't have a background in science, you're going to have to go back to college and, I don't know about you, Valerie, but uh, I I wouldn't want to take PCHEM right now, <laughs> going through calculus and all of that stuff. I actually really liked physical chemistry. I got it. I got an A plus in it. I, I'm pretty Get amazed out of here. that I did, but <laughs> that's one of the few I, courses I got, I got an, an A. a in. Well, I got an A in the class, but I I, I scored the highest uh, in the final exam which was like 57%. (laughs) I was the best of a terrible class. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. I I had a great time in that class, but anyway, yeah, it's, 
anyone can do anything at any age. It just is the the degree of difficulty that it is. So yeah. I would think, what do you want to get out of teaching, right? Being a professor is about teaching cosmetic science and specifically which aspect do you want to teach and who do you yeah. want to teach it to? Like, what are the goals of the people that you're teaching to? And I think that will help you define the career path uh, that you but, need to take because you might not even have to teach in a university or academic setting. There are lots of individual, I don't want to say lots of, but there's a few institutions that teach people how to formulate their own products or teach people how to start their own businesses within the beauty yeah. space that you could teach as well, that you don't necessarily need to go through academia to get to get that. There are a lot of those. Uh, some are better than others, but just remember anybody can make anything they want on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> there, so. Perry, maybe you could email Cindy back and send her a couple links to those different yeah, courses. Can, and yeah, that'd be great. I could certainly do that. Yeah. If you want to become a cosmetic chemist, uh, let me know. I'll, uh, I'll send you some links to uh, tell you how to do that. Yeah. Perry has some great, great literature on that, that he's created. So. All right, looks like uh, that's the end of the show. Like our time is up. You got to get back to work. And wow, thank you for taking the time out. They're they, they keeping you busy during this pandemic, I must say. <laughs> yeah, well, which is good. I'm very grateful to be employed still and uh, have a job and have my whole team be employed. So super grateful, but also I will be grateful when I can take a vacation and not work for a little bit so and take yeah. off that mask too huh? <laughs> yeah but, but it's very hard to wear a mask the whole day when you're working by the way i have to wear a mask uh to wear to weigh out dyes and when i work with ammonia and that kind of stuff but you're only wearing those for short increments you know so it's a little like right. Oof, when you take it off but you know wearing it um a mask all day when you're standing and walking through a lab and working with team members is is very exhausting i do have to say yeah. Well, thank you for coming up and making uh, time for the show today. We'll uh, have you on next time too. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Glad to be back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was I was traveling last week. I know I know we didn't yeah. uh, talk about that in chit chat. So That's right. thanks for doing a solo show. And I, I did miss everybody. Um, but enough about me. Well, thanks for we listening. We got lots everyone. of questions for next time. Yeah. Yeah. If you get a chance, please go over to iTunes and leave us a review that will help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at the Beauty Brains 2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains. And we have a Facebook page. And we're only 15 million nine hundred and eighty. 2,000 uh, <laughs> followers it's a away lot. from we're, we're James pre- We're really far away. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing. Uh, the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This will help keep the show ad-free and is the best way to keep the financial bias out of the show. So if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it, and you don't want to see us go the James Charles route where we get paid $100,000 every time we put out an episode... <laughs> Go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Uh-huh.